Uh, read our passage today, and actually we're going to read starting in verse 12 and down through the end of the chapter. And then uh, we will pray once again, and we'll pray for Gene, and we'll pray for Sarah, and uh, for God's goodness in our time this morning. So you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning and we rejoice that we get to do so. We pray for your help as we seek to understand what you have here, to understand how this salvation works, to understand even how it applies in our lives, where we can draw encouragement or correction from it. Father, we seek to understand your word and so... It is your word, and we are your people. And so we ask that you, by your spirit, would minister to us. Father, we pray for your blessing on this time. Pray that we would be engaged here, that we would listen to what you have for us, and that you would work in our hearts. Pray that you would be glorified and we would be built up. And Father, we want to pray for Gene right now also, and first responders and in those who are helping, and we want to pray for Sarah. We pray that you would bless Gene in his body. We pray that you would strengthen him. I don't know what he needs physically. I don't know what he needs in his body, but I pray that you would give it to him, and I pray that you would restore him to uh, strength, to vigor, to health. pray that you would bless him and protect him. I pray that you would work in his body, and I pray that you would work in his heart, 
that even as his body fails him, I pray that his eyes and his heart of hearts would be cast towards you, that he would find strength and comfort in you, that he would look to you in trust and confidence, faith. And I pray the same for Sarah as she watches her husband struggle. pray that you would pray that you'd bless her and uh, encourage her and even use her to encourage her husband. So, Father, we entrust them to you. We can't do anything here anyway. And you are the great physician. And so we pray that you would uh, bless in uh, the work in Jean's body and in that situation. Father, we pray for your blessing this morning. Help us to engage with your word, trusting you, not forgetting, but trusting you with what's going on out there. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today, though I read from 12 through the end of the chapter, really is only verses 18 through 21 as we uh, conclude the chapter. And, and I thought it was fitting. I don't know how many of you have ever read Tolstoy. He tends to write big books, and I tend to like big books. So I don't know if you've read them or not, but Leo Tolstoy said this. He said, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And that's the way he started his great novel, Anna Karenina, which if you have not read, I encourage you to read. It's uh, an outstanding look at life, and it's an outstanding look at families that are happy and families that are unhappy. And it examines the differences and similarities, and it follows them through the trajectory of the story as is a, a tragic one in, in some cases, and it's a glorious one in other cases. But it's the examination of families. And today's passage, in a way, is about family. It's about two fathers, as it were, the heads of two families, the, what we've called federal heads. And one, of course, is Adam, who is our first father. And the other is Christ himself, who is the last Adam. And he's the one who was to come, the one of whom Adam was a type uh, that was talked about up in verse 14 of our chapter. And so we're going to look at some of the, the, the similarities and differences. We're going to look at some of the aspects that are teased out here in this contrast of families. And we see, first of all, uh, contrasting events. Look at verses 18 and 19. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So this, as you recall from our study of this chapter, this passage is really focusing on what one man has done that has borne results for others, that has borne results for the many. That here you have Adam in the garden doing a particular thing and all of those who are in him receiving the consequences. And here you have Christ on the cross doing a particular thing 
and all of those who are in him receiving the consequences. And so we, we have this idea of the one representing the many and this term federal headship that maybe knew uh, or was new some weeks ago for, for numer- numerous of us is actually key to understanding what's going on in this passage. We need to understand that uh, we were born in Adam and we who are Christians by faith are in Christ. We have been reborn into him. And so what are these contrasting events? Well, I think we know what those contrasting events are, but if we think back to Adam's situation, Adam, of course, was uh, created. He's the first man. He was placed in the garden, and uh, he was given instructions. Uh, We read this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's the prohibition. That's the instruction, the commandment that's given is you can eat from whatever tree you want except for this one particular tree. And you may not eat the fruit of that one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, we continue reading in Genesis. We get to chapter 3 and verse 6, and we read this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the first event. This is what's referred to in our passage as the trespass. It's referred to as the disobedience. This is our first father acting on our behalf in his own life, by his own choices, disobeying God, having one instruction, having one command, and yet what does he do? He disobeys it. And, of course, we know that though he himself was the one who acted, the consequences extend to all of those who are born in him. So that's the first event. What's the second event? It's referred to here as one act of righteousness or obedience. And if so, what is that event? Well, of course, it's talking about Christ. It's talking about what Christ has done. Christ's obedience, particularly culminating in the cross. We look back earlier in this same chapter, verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were, were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So, of course, you have on the one hand with, our, with Adam, his act of disobedience, his his trespass of taking of the fruit that was forbidden to him. And in contrast with that, we have Jesus himself showing such great love for us that he would die not for good people, not for righteous people, but but for sinners like us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Christ shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us which is the same thing that Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you've got a clear contrast between these two events of Adam and of Christ. And secondly, we've got contrasting verdicts, condemnation versus justification. Look at 18 again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So we have these two different verdicts that are being contrasted. But before we get there, there's a distracting little phrase in there. Maybe you caught all men. It's mentioned twice. In the first part of the verse, it makes complete sense to me as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. But it's where it appears in the second half of the verse that it catches my attention. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's the same phrase, all men. It's identical in Greek, just as it is in English. It's on two, half, two halves of that. And so how do we understand that? How do we understand that? Well, I'll tell you right up front that it should give us pause. It should cause us to think about what is meant by all men in each of those cases. Because since the words are the same in each case, we would initially think the people indicated by those words are exactly the same. Because who is it that was bound up in death? Who bears the consequences, the condemnation of the one trespass? Well, indeed, it's all men. But what about the second half? Do all men receive justification in life? Well, the doctrine that teaches that all men receive Justification in the end, that all men are made right before God, that all men will be saved in the end, is called universalism. It's a doctrine that teaches that by some process, in some way, in the end, love wins. Right? And there is no hell because, because all mankind will be saved and will be justified and made right before God and will be in heaven in the end. That's the doctrine of universalism. But I want to disabuse you of that notion, if that is indeed your notion. There are several passages that talk about this exact thing. I would say the New Testament clearly teaches that there are some, in fact, there are many, who will bear the consequences for their sin, who will pay the penalty for their own sin and unbelief in an eternity in hell. For example, Second Thessalonians Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul speaks of flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There will be some who suffer that consequence in themselves. There will be some who pay that penalty who answer for that that punishment in their own life with their eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in hell. And of course, that's not the only place we've read about that. If you go back to Romans chapter 2, in verse 12, we don't have to reach all the way out to 
to uh, another book to see. We can look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 12. And we read this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so even in our own book here, we see a pretty clear teaching that there will be those who perish. And that doesn't just mean die in their physical body. That means that they perish eternally. There will be those who are judged by the law. And that doesn't just mean judged in death in the body or in some way in this world or in some temporal period that comes to an end at some point. It's a judgment that goes on and lasts forever. They will be judged by the law. In fact, if you think back through the book of Romans, the entirety of the argument from chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way up to chapter 3 and verse 20 has been made for the purpose that we would understand that all people are wrapped up in sin and therefore face the consequences for it. Eternal judgment. Hell. So, that's a major part of Paul, Paul's argument here in the book of Romans. And so, we can, we can do away with, with uh, universalism. We can, we can see that it's an unbiblical doctrine. However much part of us may want that. However kind and loving and compassionate it may seem. Yet, it's an unbiblical doctrine. And if it's an unbiblical doctrine, we, we can't hold to it. And so, we don't. And so, that... If I'm not going to say that all men indeed will be justified in the end, that all men indeed will be saved, then what does the second half of that verse mean? Because it says all men. Am I just changing the text to say what I already believe it says? I hope not. I hope to demonstrate for you that in the context of this book right here, all men means something very specific in both halves of this verse. Turn back to chapter 3, if you would, verses 21 through 26. I just mentioned 118 through 320 being the argument that he's making about all people being wrapped up under sin, that we're all guilty, that, that we all stand condemned before God because of the sin that we have. And then verse 21 begins this great section that is a doctrinal core for the book. That if we are going to get anything from the book of Romans, we need to get these verses from the book of Romans. And listen, listen to the way he argues here. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, how? By what means? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For whom? For all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. How is it ours when we receive it by faith? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of whom? The one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul makes it abundantly clear 
in this central doctrinal section here, he makes it abundantly clear that God justifies the one who has faith in Christ. That is where justification is located. Nowhere else but faith in Christ. Well, that's several chapters ago, Brennan. What about in our current context? Well, let's go back to chapter 5. And we'll see that Paul makes exactly the same point in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Who is it? We talked last week about who, is it, who it is that reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Who it is that receives these benefits? It's the person who receives that gift from God. Faith in Christ. He's referring back to the same context. And so in our immediate context in, in chapter 5, we can see that he's saying, he's telling us, he's making very clear to us who it is who will be justified. It's the one who receives Christ. It's the one who has faith in Christ. Only in Christ is there justification. And so... After all of that, that kind of sounds like a detour, we can come back and read verse 18 again. And by the way, this isn't just a detour. Universalism is alive and kicking. And there are many, many who believe that in the end, they publish books about it and they sell millions of copies, that in the end, there will be no hell and everyone will be redeemed and there are no ultimate consequences to your unbelief. That's deadly. That is deadly. With all of this in mind, with what we've looked at, now we come back to verse 18. And I'm going to give you what, how I understand these verses to be working together. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Pause there for a second. That group, all men, means literally all men. All people. Everybody. Everybody who's born in Adam, that's, that's the one it extends to. Everyone who is born in Adam, which happens to be everybody, right? But if we include the way he's been arguing in this chapter and earlier, led to condemnation for all men, those who are in Adam. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men who are in Christ. And so he has argued in his passage here that he's not talking about all men being saved, all men being justified. He has specified in his book already in 321 through 26 or 27 and in verse 17 right here, he's specified he's, the only way a person can be justified is by faith in Christ. And so when he says all people will be justified, he's making it clear by the rest of what he said that he's talking about all of those who are in Christ. There is justification and there is life for all of them. Condemnation is for all who are in Adam and justification is for all who are in Christ. So we've looked at a couple of different contrasts here, the contrasting events and the contrasting verdicts. Now what about the contrasting outcomes? Contrasting outcomes. Well, the outcomes in our passage here, it's condemnation, it's justification on the one hand, but then look at 19. One man's disobedience, by that the many were made sinners. 
And so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the, the outcome is sinner versus righteous. Having been made a sinner versus having been made righteous. In Adam, we received a corrupted nature that results in us following suit and sinning just like our first father. Why do we sin? Because we're in Adam. And so thus, we're sinners in various ways. We are sinners by imputation because his guilt is imputed to us. It's on our record when we are first conceived because we're his children. And so we have guilt because of imputation. Paul says that we sinned in Adam. So we're, we're guilty by imputation. We're also guilty by nature because not only do we receive the guilt, we received a sinful nature. So we start with that. That's a second type of guilt. That's a second way in which we are a sinner. And then, of course, we follow with our own actions, don't we? Our own decisions, our own life choices. We follow suit just like our first father. We, we, uh, his guilt was imputed to us. We received a, a warped sinful nature because of being in him, and we follow suit with our own actions. And so we are sinners in at least three different ways. And so that's the outcome on that side. But Paul says, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Well, we're made righteous in various ways. First of all, by imputation. The righteousness of Christ is applied to our account. Just like the guilt of Adam was applied, was imputed to our account, now, by faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed. It's given to us. It's from Him. It exists in reality in Him. And it is applied to our account. So that we are declared to be righteous. Well, there's something else that happens because it's not only by imputation, but, but what he does when he makes us a new person is he begins to work in our nature so that Paul could say that we are a new creation in Christ. That there's something new, there's something changed about us. And so he actually works in our nature. He actually changes what we are deep down, the very definition of who we are. So much so that Paul can say in chapter 8 of Romans that we live and walk in the Spirit, no longer in the flesh. We live and walk in the Spirit. And of course, He's worked in us in such a way that we follow suit with our actions, so that our actions also begin to conform to the image of Christ. It started with imputation. It was something that was given to us. It was purely His gift to us, applying the righteousness of Christ to our account. But that's not all that he did. He changed us and gave us a new nature, as it were, so that, so that there's something different about the very constitution of who we are. And then he works in us so that we actually even change our behavior, our actions. And so we see contrasting outcomes of what it means to be in Adam or in Christ. You see, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Adam... And those who are in Christ. Adam disobeyed God and fell into sin. And he took with him all of those who are in him. And they received the condemnation of their first father's sin. They became sinners themselves. But on the other hand, Christ perfectly obeyed the Father. And he earned righteousness for all those who believe in him. In fact, they receive 
justification and righteousness. And so that's looking at those two families. That's a, that's a brief look at those families. And if we think about what Paul has done here, is he has cast all of the history of the entire world into this discussion of comparing two families, as it were. Comparing two men, two federal heads, Adam and Christ. And he says everything can be summed up by those who are either in Adam or those who are in Christ, which raises a question for the Jew. Because the Jew would probably divide time in a different way. They would probably divide time from before the giving of the law and after the giving of the law because the law is so central. And so Paul's going to move to that topic in verse 20, the effects of the law. He talks, first of all, about the entrance of the law. He said, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he says the the law did come in. He's answering maybe this objection or he's he's pointing out the obvious. You see, to tell the the history of the world uh, to a Jew and not include discussion of the law would be kind of like telling the history of the 20th century and never mentioning the United States. You miss a large portion of how the history of the 20th century worked if you don't discuss the United States. And so Paul does that. He brings in the law. So you have the entrance of the law. And and the law was given for the increase of sin. For the increase of sin. I don't know how many times I tripped over that when I read it. This was the reason the law was given. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That was part of God's purpose for giving the law was actually to increase trespass. Well, how can that be? Well, in the brief time remaining, I just want to remind us of what Paul said over in 4.15 of Romans. He said, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay? And he said again in 5.13 that sin is not counted where there is no law. So there's a connection between the existence of law and the guilt of sin. But we know that even before the law was given, even though sin is not counted where there is no law, and, and uh, even though there, where there is no law, there is no transgression, yet people died, didn't they, from Adam to Moses? The people who existed before the giving of the law still died. They still bore the penalty. But what law had existed? Well, we could discuss that, but I would say that at the very least, the law that existed was the prohibition that God had given to Adam. He told Adam, don't do this one thing. And Adam did that one thing. And we, along with him, did that one thing. Because we are included in him. So there was, there was one restriction given. And it was broken. And so that's transgression. That's a trespass. That's sin. And so we're all guilty of that. We all bear the results of that. But what the law does is the law comes onto the scene and it gives multitudes of of laws and instructions, multitudes of commands. Well, what does the human nature, the fallen sinful nature do when God gives a command? We look for ways to disobey it. Our natural rebellion, our deep-seated rebellion and sin within us tells us, I'm not going to obey what God says. God God told me one thing and I disobeyed that thing. So when God tells me hundreds of things, 
Now I've got hundreds of things to disobey. And so what do we do? We disobey them, don't we? We disobey God more and more. That Actually, the more that God reveals of Himself, the more of His, His, uh, His character and His nature that He reveals, the more we actually rebel against that. The natural man hates that. And so now natural man has more and more to rebel against. And so by the giving of the law, it actually increases sin. It increases sin. Paul's going to say in 7.13, Did that which is good, the law, did that which is good bring me death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, sin increased and became increasingly, obviously, undeniably sinful beyond measure. The more God reveals of himself and his character and his nature, the more he reveals of himself in his law and his commands, the more the natural man disobeys. That's the response of the sinful heart. Now, it's possible that that sounds unreasonable and counterproductive until you think about the abundance of grace that God lavishes on us. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin piled up and sin piled up, and the more God reveals of His will and His desires, the more sin piles up. But where that sin piles up, grace still outdoes it. So much so that Paul will write about it at the end of chapter 8 of Romans where he's celebrating all of these great gifts, the glories that are ours because of the fact that we are in Christ. And he's rejoiced in those victories and those things that Christ has done in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And here in chapter 8, and he concludes chapter 8 with these verses. Talk about grace abounding. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin piled up, and this is the ultimate result. No matter how great the sin piled up, no matter how much sin there was, how grievous that sin was, yet Christ overcomes it. We talked last week about the fact that He doesn't merely pay the penalty to bring us back to a, a balance of zero. 
He pays all of that penalty, brings us back to and far past the balance of zero so that in Christ we are exceedingly abundantly wealthy in the riches of Christ. Righteousness that's ours because we are in Christ is incalculable. It's unimaginable. The, the mountain of sin, the greater that mountain of sin, the greater that guilt gets. And it got greater and worse as the law was brought in. But the greater it gets, that much greater is the gift of Christ. That much greater is the abundance of grace that's ours in Him. So much more than all of our sin. So often when I share the gospel with someone or, or when I'm counseling with someone and they're wrestling with their own struggles and their own guilt of sin, and they think, my, my guilt is too great. My sin is too much. I, I think I understand where they're coming from, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. You're thinking, you don't know what I've done. Well, I don't know what you've done. And your guilt may be very great. But the grace of God in Christ Jesus is far greater. It superabounds far beyond your guilt with the grace of God. So that your debt of guilt and that guilt that you feel is just the start. And the payment of Christ pays for that guilt, pays for that debt, and far beyond it. So that you have peace with God. You have the righteousness of Christ applied to you so that you can stand before God. In His presence with that guilt having been dealt with in Christ. And abundant grace lavished on you in Him. This brings us to the purposes of God. Verse 21. The purposes of God. He starts with so that. For the purpose that. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. First, he talks about the reign of sin. Sin reigned in death. I challenge you sometime to go through, the next time you're reading through Romans or, uh, or studying even just up to where we are right now, that you will see words Sinning type words like transgression and sin, trespass, disobedience, things like that. They, of course, occur in 1 through 5.12. You can see that the words occur, but they pile up and they mount up here in this passage because Paul is trying to demonstrate for us, he's trying to show for us just how great that guilt is. Not so that we will be crushed under the weight of that guilt. Not so that, that we will leave and believe that, that, that God's grace is, is inadequate compared to my guilt, but so that we will understand the truth of what our guilt is. And then, from that point, we will see the reign of grace. That His grace goes far beyond that. His grace covers that, it deals with it, and it goes beyond it in such a way that Paul almost makes up a new word, superabundant. It superabounds, it goes beyond, so far beyond that you can't describe it. The reign of grace in the life of the Christian, which leads him into a discussion in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, and is going to lead to all of the applications in 12 and following 
the grace of God now reigns in the life of the believer. And how does the grace of God reign? Well, through the means of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ applied to your account. And it has a goal. It's the goal of leading to eternal life. That's what he's accomplishing. That's what he's doing in you. That's what the grace of God is accomplishing. And how is that accomplished? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, who is justified? Only the one who has faith in Christ. Well, how justified is the person who has faith in Christ? How much grace is there lavished upon that person? It's super abundant grace. It's the kind of grace that gives life, and not just life in the here and now, but eternal life. Right standing before God, joy of being in God's presence. The grace of God reigns in our lives. So I want to conclude with just a couple of points of application. Christian, the grace of God reigns in your life. Sin does not reign in your life. This is where Paul's going to take this argument, starting in chapter 6 and verse 11. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying you need to do a mental trick and you need to pretend like. I grew up in Arkansas, and so I didn't say pretend like. I said ten like. Ten like we were playing, whatever. So you need, he's not just saying pretend like. As if you were, he's saying, keep in mind that the reality is true. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay. All right. I got it. I need to, I need to keep that truth in mind. I died with Christ. Therefore, sin has no dominion over me. So, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Christians, some of you are still living as though sin has dominion. Sin gets to call the shots. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, but, but sin really calls the shots in your life. Believer, you need to understand Grace calls the shots in your life. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. It's part of the definition of what it means to be a Christian, that you are not under that dominion of sin. You are instead under the dominion of Christ, where grace reigns. And so stop giving permission. Stop submitting yourselves to sin. Where sin says, do this thing, and you... And you do that thing. Believer, you need to know you are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. And He reigns and sin does not. And so you submit yourself. You submit yourself to Christ. Your, your members as instruments of righteousness, of obedience to God. That's the application. At least that's the application He's going to go to in chapter 6. There's an application for some of you who are not sure. Some of you who don't know Christ. 
you're not sure what you think about this, or maybe as you've learned more about the gospel, you realize that you didn't really understand it. The question for you is, which family are you in? Who's your head? Are you still in Adam? Are you still in Adam? Bearing those consequences of his sin, being, being guilty for what he did because you're united with him. And then with that nature that's warped and then your own actions, bearing the consequences. Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? The one who is, who is in Christ has been set free from those things. Christ has died. Christ has paid the penalty Christ has walked in obedience to the Father. And if you will put your faith in Christ, if you will trust in Him, He will apply that to your account. So that instead of that guilt of Adam, you have the righteousness of Christ applied to your account. And He begins to, to, to work in you anew, to shape your life, to form you, to conform you to the image of Christ. And so the call for the unbeliever this morning is to put your faith in Christ. Turn away from that first father, Adam, and trust in Christ. And you will find life in Him. Justification in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You that, that we were not left in Adam. Thank you for the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who obeyed where Adam and we disobeyed, who himself in his own life was righteous, so that we who have faith in him can have that righteousness applied to us. That he himself as the last Adam paid the penalty on the cross for sin. That we might have forgiveness. Father, we praise you and we thank you for this. And I pray this morning that anyone who is still in Adam would come to faith in Christ that you would draw them to yourself, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved even this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help us. This has been a heavy conversation, technical conversation sometimes. Father, I pray that it would be building up to the body of Christ. I pray that it would help us to understand what this relationship with you is and what it's based on that we would understand these things are right so that when we go into 6, 7, and 8, we'll know what we're talking about, that we will understand better what it means to be a Christian. And these, these things that we struggle with, that we wrestle with, questions that we have, that they would be answered because we understand being in Adam or being in Christ. So I pray that you would work in us and help us.